Well, good morning, man. Do you, do you believe there's joy in Jesus? Man, I, I do. I know there is because uh, I'm joyful this morning after nothing but loss yesterday. Oh my gosh. Of course, you know, Karen and I went to A&M and A&M played Alabama. I don't know. I just feel like the whole college season's irrelevant. Can we just give Roll Tide the trophy and call it a year? Gee whiz, that's ridiculous. And, and then my girls and their husbands went to Tech. What? What? Do we have any monarchs in here today? Do we have some fighting butterflies? Isn't that what a monarch is? I, how do you get behind a butterfly? I don't know how that works. But I, I tell you, the one loss, I'm not a big believer that there's some kind of victory to be found in loss. But Army going into Oklahoma last night. Huh? Yeah, you didn't watch it because it was only on radio. But West Point took Oklahoma Sooners all the way to, the, to overtime. I mean, go Army, beat Navy, amen? I know we got some Army in here, come on. I, a couple of Navy guys hiding around in there, but okay, let's, now we're over that. Uh, so yeah, today we're continuing our series on my Bible, and uh, you, might, you might notice in your bulletin that the title today is exactly the same as the title last week. What is the Bible? And uh, we got kind of a part one and a part two going on last week and, and this week. And that question, what is my Bible? I mean, we're kind of developing that last week, this week, the next couple of weeks. But, you know, a simple answer would be it's God's voice. That, that's what the Bible is. It's God's voice. It's God's word for you, for me. And listen to this, for our prophet. Doesn't always feel good to read everything in there. Sometimes we don't like what we're being told in there, but it's for our profit. It lays down the road of life, gives us the lines to drive between, the road signs to obey, the directions to take so that we can arrive safely at our, our destination. And, and what is that destination? Folk, folks, that's a place where you and I stand before the living God joyously confidently looking like Christ, being rewarded as if we were. That's what God's voice spoke for you. That's what God's voice is wanting to do in your life. Now, last week we started by developing again, what is God's word? And we, we, we said it's the inspired word of God. That was our big word last week, inspired. And that, that word means that, that when you read a sentence, when you see a word, it started in God's mouth. That's what the word inspired in the Bible means. It means God breathed. It originated with him. Came through mankind, but but originated with him. And and today we're going to add two more words to that word inspired. We're going to say it's inerrant and it is incomparable. We're going to add to that today. But I'll tell you something. If you weren't here last week, and I, I I don't say this often, but if you weren't here last week, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. I, I would call today's message complementary or, or supplementary to last week's message. We got to understand that what we're reading came from God. And, and then today we're going to add a little bit more of the wonder and, and the awe of that. Last week we also saw, we, we, you might remember I started by looking at a, a, a secular news article from a website that uh, challenged you and me to get over our moral nostalgia. To, to get past the Bible, 
The, the views that we carry from the Bible are, are leaving us behind in society. And, and we were told to just kind of get over that and kind of update our, our views and our opinions to where cultural thought is. And, and it actually listed out areas where we're getting left behind. Areas where we don't believe like we should. I'd like to mention those five areas again, but instead of the way the article mentioned them, I want to mention them the way that God says it. I don't think it'll be too outlandish until you realize these five statements I'm about to make. I mean, I want to say some of you, probably many of you, there's two or three comments here. You say these at work and you get fired. That's not a possibility of how bad it might get one day. That's what's going on in America right now. These statements I'm about to make are wrong. And they'll get you in trouble, according to the website. And and, and what are those five statements? Crazy ideas like marriage is between one man and one woman. Sex, number two, sex is for marriage. And that's not just a statement for young people. That, that's for all marital statuses. That's for all how we you know, change and move throughout life. It never stops being true that sex is for one man and one woman inside of a marriage. Number three, homosexuality is wrong. As is all sexual behavior and thought outside of one man and one woman in marriage. How about this idea? The best opportunity for a child is in a marriage with a mom and a dad. That doesn't mean there's not other ways we can't deal with challenges and problems. That's clearly the best opportunity, the best way for a child. And lastly, abortion abortion is wrong. Because God declares the personhood of what we would refer to as a fetus in the womb. Those, those wouldn't seem to be outlandish statements as, what, as recently as 15, 20 years ago? Certainly 50 years ago. Those statements in our culture today are wrong to say. It's wrong to say that. And, and here's what I get would maybe from the cultural's perspective is kind of confusing is, is because, I mean, there's more than one Christian running around out there saying what my view, my opinion is. And, and whether it's an individual or whether it's a church, society can see churches that support abortion. Churches that support same-sex marriage. And so when you don't support that, it really does just look like, well, it's this person's opinion and that person's opinion. And, of course, we've got the mean opinion, right? We're, we're, we're the mean ones because we hold on to that, that moral nostalgia of ours. But, you know, one thing I tried to say last week Folks, the issue between this Christian and that Christian, this church and that church, is not, not on these five statements I just made, it's not an issue of interpretation. It's not that, well, this church is looking at these verses, and this church is looking at these, and that's how they end up in different places. Or, or this church is interpreting it one way, and, and we're interpreting it another way. That's not the issue. The issue here is the view of the Bible as a whole, not a singular sentence in it. 
We either see that and respect that as the holy authoritative word of God or we reject it. And I would imagine there was some out there that would probably not like the word reject, but, but they are doing something less with the word of God than seeing it as originating and beginning from his mouth. And so we hold these views and we're seen to be mean. You know what? It's, it's, it's not mean to say there's a right and a wrong, is it? I, I talked with our young people about that this summer at, at youth camp because society really is kind of painting this picture that if you say something is wrong, it's because you hate that person. You hate them, you want them destroyed, you want things taken away from them, you want them to hurt and suffer, and I'm, I'm thinking, I, I don't want any of that. I, I, I can say that someone or something is wrong without wanting that someone or something destroyed, wanting that someone or something to hurt and, and, and to be without. But that's, that's kind of where we are today. To, to say something is wrong implies all this, this other stuff. The funny thing is, the Word of God tells me how to approach a conversation when we're going to talk about what's wrong. It tells me how to approach a person. And you know, the first thing it says, in humility, right? Because not one of us is running around here standing on a constant platform of being right. Hey, I might talk with a person about something wrong in their life with a full understanding there's things that are wrong in my life. It also says that when we talk with a person about wrong, we do it with, with gentleness and we do it with respect. So nowhere is the scripture authorizing the idea that if somebody's doing wrong, we want to hate them and we want to hurt them. That's not true. It's not hate to say there's right and there's wrong. Now, I, I, I get it. It doesn't feel good to be told something's wrong, right? And if you tell me I'm wrong, it's probably not love that I'm feeling at that moment. But don't we in love... I mean, think about with our children. I mean, in love, isn't it out of love that we say, hey, that's not right. You can't live that way. You, you can't do that. That's not going to work for you. So I'm getting a little bit off topic there. But I think that's, that's important. And we need to understand right or wrong, however the world perceives it, we're not trying to get our opinion over somebody else's opinion. Where did the opinion originate? Not from my mouth. It originated from God's mouth. And I don't want to focus so much on why another church or why another believer has a lesser view, a lesser understanding. But I do want to make sure that you and I know why do we give the authority such scripture. I mean, uh, such, why do we give the scripture such authority? Why, why do we understand it that way? And again, last week we said, well, because of where it started from. It started in God's mouth. It's, it's his word. It's what he's saying, not, not me. And today we want to add to that, that it is incomparable and it is inerrant. In, incomparable. Now, now, the Bible is a book, right? And it has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it tells one continuous story all the way throughout. Isn't that amazing? You know, I mean, you should say, don't all books kind of do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but this one was written over 1,500 years 
Job, the earliest book written, uh, the first five books, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, these books were written in about 1400 BC on up through the New Testament that was written in the first century AD. So we're covering 1500 years and obviously that means more than one author, right? Over 40 different authors contribute. Most of them, if not all of them, never had any idea that what they were writing was going to be combined with other writings and make this one book. Probably had no actual concept of of that happening. And and so they, they write over this 1,500 years. And these authors are, I mean, some of them are kings. Some are peasants. Do you think a king and a peasant have a different outlook on life? Do you think they look at people differently? Maybe even have a different understanding, a different experience with God. You have kings, you have peasants, you have very educated people writing. And and believe it or not, some of them are called uneducated. You got the educated and the uneducated writing. You got the rich and the poor. You have people writing during times of war and times of, of peace. You have all these things that really profoundly affect how we look at life and everything going on. And yet when you read it and you do see them writing from that experience, it still combines as one harmonious story. I I, I love it when people, especially on like sex and sexuality, right? People look at this book and they say, well, that's, that's just what that culture believed. Why am I letting that culture affect what culture? We're acting like this book represents one people, one culture, one time, 1,500 years. Let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between American culture in 2018 and 1918? You can go ahead and answer that out loud. There's a massive difference. We don't even look like the same country. Some of that is good. Some of that is not. Some of it may just be neutral. We're a very different country from who and what we were. And my gosh, we're a different country than we were 20 years ago. I mean, all cultures, not just America. Cultures evolve. They devolve. They change. They move in different directions. The Bible doesn't represent one culture. It's a multiplicity of cultures and and ideas. I, I mean, it's written on three different continents. Part of it in Africa, part of it in Asia, part of it in Europe. Part of it's written in Hebrew, part of it's written in Greek, part of it is written in Aramaic. I mean, do you realize how many different people, places, ideas, and time periods this is coming to us from? And yet it reads as one continuous story. And it's not writing about one idea that they just all happen to agree on. Man, it's, it's written on dozens and dozens of controversial topics like sex and sexuality, like marriage, like divorce, like death, like after, like God. More than one opinion on this planet about God? I mean, you, you've got 1,500 years of writing and talking a, a, about God, all these different topics, and yet it reads as one continuous, harmonious story. It's almost like there was a general editor. There was. His name's God. My goodness, folks. Come on, catch up with me here. You know, imagine this. Imagine this, and I mean, I don't know for a fact how this would turn out. Imagine if we chose six principles, six principles, all from Virginia. And let's not spread them out over 1,500 years, because as 
old as Virginia is, we don't quite have 1,500 years we're working with. Let's, let's just say the last six decades. So we got a principle from the 60s. Let me start over here because y'all... 60s, 70s, 80s. You got where I'm going? Six principles from six decades. They all speak the same language. They're all from Virginia. They won't have an identical education, but it's going to be similar, right? It'll be very, very close in their, their, their education. And we're going to have these six principles write just about three topics. They're going to write about student discipline. Yeah, that's identical today to what it was in 1960. They're, they're going to write about student discipline, the management of teachers, and the objectives of education. Let me tell you something. Not only are their writings not going to come together and fit, it's going to look like they're writing from different planets. Am, am I right? And I'm not just talking about the one in the 60s, you know, the two outside ones. I'll tell you something. There'll be a difference between the 70s and the 90s. Yeah, do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about how unique and incredible this book is? That it comes from all these places and it reads as one harmonious story. It's absolutely unique in its, in its uh, historical unity. It's also absolutely unique in its historical reliability. You are holding in your hand, and by the way, I hope you're holding a Bible in your hand. But, but you are holding in your hand something that has no comparison in human history. When I talk about reliability, I'm talking about, like, I just opened to Matthew here. Now, when I read these words, am I reading what Matthew wrote? When I read Jeremiah, I mean, how, how do I know I'm actually reading what Jeremiah wrote? Or Isaiah? Or, or Peter? Because we don't have what literary scholars call the original autographs. We don't have the piece of paper that Peter wrote on, that Jeremiah wrote on. So since we don't have that piece of paper, how do we know what we're reading is what he wrote? Now, before you kind of get weirded out by that statement, we don't have the original autographs of any ancient writings. You ever read or even just seen a quote by Plato or Socrates? We don't have anything they actually put their hand to. So literary scholars came up with a uh, kind of a science, a, a formula for how you figure out something's reliability. It's, it's when it was written, when's our earliest copies, how many copies do we have? And uh, I want to show you what, what this looks like uh, up here on the screen. Now, these two right here, the Iliad and the Annals, uh, would be two, uh, what, what, the Iliad is the most reliable source in human history from ancient writings. That is number one. Anybody read Homer's Iliad? I, a couple of us? Yeah, I read it when I was at Texas A&M. And, and I had it in my mind that I wasn't going to say one thing about the Alabama A&M game when A&M won. But right there when I said I was going to, I read Homer's Iliad at A&M and I was going to say, Woo, how about A&M yesterday? Y'all thought I wasn't going to, but we lost, so never mind. Um, so, Homer's Iliad is, is the best you get in human history. There is no source that is more reliable. Now, what do I mean by reliable? When you read Homer's Iliad, you are reading what Homer wrote. And this is why scientists say that. Homer wrote in 800 B.C. Our earliest copy is 400 B.C., so the spread there is 400 years. That sounds like a lot to you and me, doesn't it? But, but actually, in archaeology and measuring all that kind of stuff, that's, that's, well, that's number one. 400 years. 643 copies. Now, that doesn't mean that all 643 copies are dated 400 B.C. 
it means of the 643 copies, the earliest ones are 400 B.C. And so when literary scholars put all these copies, is there agreement between the copies? Do the older ones agree with the younger ones? Is there agreement between the... And and we're getting that because we're trying to say, is this reliable? Now, the annals, folks, we're still talking about the top three or four things in all of human history. And look at the drop. The annals isn't number 73 on the list. It's right there with Homer. And you go from a 400-year spread to a 1,000-year spread and only 20 copies. And yet literary scholars would say, now the annals, we've got good evidence. We've got good proof. Okay, let's let's put the New Testament through these paces, okay? Let's see. New Testament was written between A.D. 50 and 100. Exact. That's a, those are round numbers. The exact dates are Galatians. And I bring that up because I think a lot of you will be studying Galatians when you go to life group here in a little bit. Galatians was written in 49 AD. That's the first book written or first letter written in the New Testament. Uh, Revelation was the last one in 95 AD. And we have fragments. Now, fragment, that, it means what you think it means. You know, we're talking about papers that were left in jars and in the dirt and they got torn and they got ruined. But we have found a fragment. It's actually called P41. Only in seminary would you hear that. It's called P41. It is a verse out of John. And you want to know something kind of cool? It's identical to what you're holding in your hand today. And it's dated at 114. So why it says 50 years, uh, all of John's stuff, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, the Gospel of John, were all written in the 80s and 90s. So we're really talking about a spread there of only about 20 or 25 years. We have fragments dating all the way back to 114. We have uh, um, uh, entire books dated by 200. By 250, we have almost all of the New Testament copies out there floating around. And by 325, the complete... New Testament is rolling around out there in copies. So you have less than 50 years to 225 years span with 5,366 copies. Second place is a joke. Homer wish he had the kind of evidence that the New Testament had. I mean, folks, you're not going to remember this chart. You're not going to remember these names. But what you can say is when the New Testament is put through the standards that literary scholars... I'm not talking about Christian literary scholars. I'm just talking about literary scholars. When the New Testament is put through the standard of literary scholars, the New Testament so far out surpasses anything else. It literally is a joke. And you say, well, the news, what about the Old Testament? Yeah, the Old Testament only has about 20,000 copies. And the same kind of span. Folks, when you hold the Bible, you're holding the most reliable document in human history from the ancient world. And that's, that's not a statement of faith. That, that's just scientific fact. So this is an absolutely... Uh, incomparable book in its historical unity, incomparable book in its historical reliability. And another thing that makes this book very incomparable is that it is inerrant. Inerrant. What does that mean? Without error, right? It, It doesn't make a single mistake. There's no misleading. There's nothing that needs to be updated, that needs to be repaired or needs to be fixed. I mean, that's quite a thing to say about something. I mean, think of, think of like the software that runs the world today. As a matter of fact, if you have an iPad 
or an iPhone. Didn't we all do an update this week? iOS 12. We all got to, you know, make, make the update and you, you got to do that. And you can't use your phone for like 30 minutes, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and listen, this is the stuff that runs the world today and it needs updated. It, it needs patches. It needs to be fixed. And we're not bothered by that. I mean, hey, if humans touch it, there's an error, right? If humans are involved in it, there's going to be mistakes. Sometimes it's not a mistake. It's just we, we learn and, and we gain knowledge that we didn't have prior. And so that new knowledge has to be factored in. Now, we might wonder, well, now, obviously, scientifically, we know a lot more today than we did 2,000 years ago. Doesn't the Bible not update it on the science? No. The Bible does not make one single statement that is scientifically wrong. Are you shocked to hear that? It doesn't make a single scientific statement that is wrong. As a matter of fact, it talks about the earth being circular when most of human history at that time thought it was flat. And they said, well, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, it talks about God making the male and the female. And we, we kind of know scientifically. No, I said this last week. That's a theory. And I, I get it. I respect the fact that the world has bought into the lie that we're going to teach a theory as a fact, even though the theory has never actually arrived provable as a fact. But a theory does not mean this needs to be updated or corrected. It's a theory. It may be one that a lot of people are working with, but a theory doesn't prove another theory wrong. I'll call call the Bible's creation, and and we'll call that for a theory, for a scientific perspective. One theory doesn't prove another theory wrong. The only time a theory proves a theory wrong is when the theory is proven fact, and those things haven't been proven as fact. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. Look up here at these verses. God's presentation of his word is is without error. God's word, look at these words, perfect, trustworthy, right, clear, and true. You can't use any of those words if there's errors and mistakes in there. You can't use any of those words if we need to update it. Now, that, that, those verses don't prove the Bible's without error, but it sure challenges anybody to come find out, right? It sure says, okay, bring it. Let, let, prove, me, prove me wrong. But the God's word certainly is presented without error. God's word is not to be added to or subtracted from. And the next one, put that up there, says God's word is not to be altered. It, it, it doesn't need to be altered because culture has changed. It doesn't need to be altered because I've changed in my feelings. No, I need to be altered to God's word. Culture needs to be altered to God's word. It doesn't need anything added to or subtracted from. And look what Jesus said. He said that the word of God was going to be fulfilled down to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. I mean, Jesus is saying there, it's not just that the word originated from God's mouth. The strokes and the letters are going to be fulfilled. Now, he, he doesn't actually say dotting of the I and crossing of the T. He, he, he refers to the jot and the tittle. And, and those are words kind of in Hebrew language. That's a little stroke in their letters. And if you were to translate into our language, it'd be the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. You get it? But you see what Jesus is saying all the way down to the strokes on letters. It's going to be fulfilled. Now, again, the Bible saying that about itself doesn't make it true. But, boy, it sure invites a, sure invites a challenge, doesn't it? 
And and throughout history, almost every discipline has attacked, has scrutinized, has tried to prove the scriptures wrong. Folks, when anything's definitively proven wrong, we stop following it, don't we? Most of us don't continue to believe what we know doesn't work, what we know doesn't add up, what we know is wrong, and the Bible has never been disproven. Now, when I say that, you can Google, you know, mistakes in the Bible, and you'll get whole articles. You can buy books that will show you all the mistakes and contradictions made in the Bible, and I I don't know if they're writing that out of ignorance, I don't know if they're purposely trying to deceive. About 99% is really just counting on the fact that whoever's reading their article doesn't have a clue how to interpret Scripture, doesn't have any real working knowledge of Scripture. Most of what they've done, they've done zero interpretation of a verse or they've lifted it entirely out of context. And, and meaning is found in the context. We don't lift one verse out to make it say what we want. It, that verse was given in a context. It has to be understood all, all the way around it. And uh, it, matter of fact, if, if you've ever heard somebody say that, want to know more about it, Gleason Archer, A-R-C-H-E-R, has a book called uh, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. It's a lot of fun. You'll learn some neat things, some great trivia uh, that you can use at parties, and you'll, you'll be on top of it. But it'll really help you work through what some of them referred to as contradictions. i give you an example, and this isn't a hard one, but this would be an example of a mistake made in the Bible. One gospel says that when the disciples went to the empty tomb, there was an angel there. And another gospel says there was two angels there. Well, which is it? They can't both be right, right? I mean, one of it, there's either one or there's two. Is that a contradiction? Not, not at all. It's not one bit of contradiction. First of all, the, when they state that, they're not acknowledging there was multiple trips all morning long, all day Sunday, back and forth to the empty tomb. You know, when you put somebody in a tomb and then they're not there, you go more than once. Yeah, I'm going to go check out what that is. They went as an individual. They went as groups. They went in small small groups, large groups. And it's very possible that they were both standing there at the same time and one said one and one said two. Why? Because the one that said one was referring to the angel that spoke because one of them spoke, the other didn't. And so when it's testimony, there the angel and the angel said this, the other is just making fact, hey, there was, there was two angels there. The scripture is not wrong in saying, here's what the eyewitnesses were reporting. You know what investigators love? An eyewitness. You know what an investigator loves more than an eyewitness? Multiple eyewitnesses. Because, man, folks, we could line up 10 people right here and have them watch the same thing right in front of them, and and they're going to see something that another didn't. They're going to give a perspective that another didn't. And an investigator wants to pull all the eyewitnesses together and, and get the full story, right? You ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and thought, gosh, these things sound identical? Why, why didn't somebody just combine Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John's a little different, but a gospel account. Why didn't we just combine them all together and have one, one big gospel? Why, why is there four different ones? Four different eyewitness accounts. Of course there's tremendous similarity. They're looking at the same thing. They're hearing the same thing. But then they're also adding something that maybe they just personally experienced and saw and felt. 
the scripture is giving us four eyewitness accounts of what happened during the, the life of Jesus Christ. I tell you, it's really an amazing book, isn't it? Now, sometimes churches that, that, uh, that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, I, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody make a comment like this, but they'll say, well, the Bible is inspired, it is inerrant as it relates to spiritual matters. You know, when it's making a spiritual point, when it's teaching us something, oh, it's inspired, it's from God, it is, it is in air. But if it's history and science, not there. Now, my first response to that is, why do we have to make that point? It's not wrong anywhere in history. It's not wrong anywhere in its science. So why do we have to placate? Why do we have to suggest that it's not inerrant in those areas? The other way I would respond is, you can't separate the two. You you can't say there's a great spirit. I mean, if you separate spiritual from history, you're just now dealing with a book of myths, legends, and fairy tales. And, of course, many would be happy to accept this as a book of myth, legends, and fairy tales because now I don't have to obey it, right? When when I read it and it's showing me the wrong that is in my life, I can now reject it because I don't believe in unicorns. By the way, there's no unicorn in the Scripture, Okay. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't do that. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's take the, the life of Christ again. The beginning of his life and the end of his life here on earth. We have a virgin birth and a resurrection. Neither one of those is very scientific, is it? But the scripture isn't pretending that science. The scripture calls them miracles. It rises above the natural order. The scripture says, no, this is not normal. You should not regularly look for virgin births. That's not something to anticipate. A miracle happened here, something that superseded nature. Now, if I look at those two events and say, now, what is there to learn about these spiritually, even though they probably didn't happen that way? What's the spiritual meaning behind a virgin birth or the resurrection? There is no spiritual meaning if it didn't happen. If there was not a virgin birth, then everything we learn theologically about Jesus entering the world that way, if there was no resurrection, then everything that is profited in our lives because of that resurrection, if it didn't happen, there is no spiritual meaning. You can't separate the two. Now, I did say that God's word that originated in his mouth did come through man. And I also said a moment ago, anything man touches, it, it has an error in it, Right? So so how is it that God's word, okay, we understand where it started from, but it did come through people. It did come through personalities. It did come out on ink. How How did it do that without getting corrupted, without error being introduced to that? And folks, we really, we should look at our Bible much like we do Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the living word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. That word, word there, if you look in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is the revelation of who God is. So there is a living revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, and there is a written revelation of who God is. Both are 100% God and 100% man. 
Jesus is 100% God. As we read about his life, not only in the scriptures, but even outside the scriptures, he, he, he knew the future and it was proved. He knew, uh, he knew what people were thinking. He did miracles. He displayed character qualities and powers of a God. But he was also 100% human. He, he got tired. He got hungry. He, he bled, right? But... The humanity being attached to the deity did not force the humanity, did, the humanity did not force the deity to err. A- Any more that when God spoke, obviously his sovereign control guided how it went through people. And you know, we focus today on what we have inside the Bible, the words, but it's not just what was written, it was how it was all collected, right? I didn't even discuss that. The canonization, how did we get these 66 books into one book, into one Bible? God sovereignly brought all that together and made sure it came together without error. The addition of humanity to deity does not force the deity to err. Let let me conclude the same way I I did last, last week. Folks, I believe the Bible because Jesus believed it. And you know what? I don't expect the world to be impressed with that as, as evidence of anything. But I do know that I'm speaking here, Midlothian, online to a lot of people who would suggest that they're a Christ follower, right? I, I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus. The person you say you follow believed this book. He talked about Adam and Eve as real historical characters. He talked about Jonah and the great fish as if it actually happened. He quoted almost all of the prophets in the Old Testament. You saw what he said a moment ago. This word is accurate. It is to be fulfilled down to the dotting of an I and the crossing of a T. And he rose from the dead. I'm going to go with his opinion. You know, until you conquer death and come walking out of the grave to share a greater truth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Jesus. He's done something I haven't seen anybody else do. And by the way, I do believe that's historically provable. But he believed in this book, which means if I'm suggesting that I follow him, then I don't have the right and I don't have the authority to pick and choose what I like and don't like and suggest it doesn't all have to be followed. The second reason I believe the Bible is, is fulfilled prophecy. I, I mean, folks, l- listen. When you enter this book, it takes faith, right? I, I, I mean, there are so many things I am so certain of. And, and I probably, in a lot of ways, try to present Christianity, try to present the Scriptures as almost some kind of formula that if you plug it in, man, it works and it's guaranteed and it's provable and all. And I'm going to do that a lot. Having said all that, when you enter this book, it takes faith. There's faith here. What I like to point out is God never requires faith to be synonymous with ignorance. The Bible actually says that we love God with our mind. Because the Bible says he gave us our mind. So he's not honored and exalted when we set our mind on a shelf to love and serve him. So, so faith, yes, it takes faith to believe, to follow. But it's not a blind faith. It's not an ignorant faith. Having said that, it does not take faith 
to look in the scriptures and see the, the future that was told over and over and over and over. We can scientifically, historically, archaeologically, we can date when the prediction was given and we can date what actually happened in history. Sometimes those predictions are hundreds of years in advance. And, it, and it's not, I'm not talking about these like Nostradamus predictions where like 90 different events or people could fulfill that one prediction. I'm talking about specific dates, names of people, what's going to happen to certain nations, when it's going to happen to certain nations. And the Bible is right every single time. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah 53. They almost read like eyewitness accounts of somebody standing at the cross watching what happened to Jesus. And they were written 500 years and 900 years before Jesus went to the cross. You know, when you predict the future over and over and over and you're right 100% of the time, I don't know, I'm going to listen. I'm going to see what what has to be said here. And folks, the the reason for understanding all this, the reason for presenting this is not so that you and I can go out and pick fights with the world because we got a better book, a better source of information than they do. Boy, folks, I tell you what, if it is going to cost us to believe the Bible, I, I, I do want me personally, you, I want us to be able to understand why we believe what we believe about this book. I want us, I want us to understand why we allow the authority that it has in our lives. But, but, but the reason to know all this is, is not to, to win debates. Folks, my prayer for myself, for you, as we go through this fall, is that we come out the other side a hundred times more committed than we've ever been to read it, to study it, to memorize it, and ultimately to obey it. God did not give us this book so we could win Bible trivia contests. He did not give us this book because he wanted a group of people to be really smart about Jewish history and Jewish geography. He gave us this book to change our lives. Every time, every time you read it, you should close it and say, what do I do with this now? What needs to be added? What needs to be deleted? What do I need to change in my life? I just looked at perfection. Now, how do I move toward that? With a result, I end up standing before God with a great confidence. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to obey That's the goal, to obey. Listen, if I don't obey, it doesn't matter how much I read. doesn't matter how much I memorize. doesn't matter what I can explain about the Bible or any one verse in it. If I don't obey, it just doesn't matter. Amen? Amen. Hey, listen, look on your bulletin on sermon notes on the back. I've got two books there that I recommend. Uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. I've got those. And then I mentioned the Gleason Archer book. I didn't, I didn't put it on here, but Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Listen, if you're kind of intrigued by what we've talked about the last two Sundays, a lot of it, uh, there, there's stuff in here that I learned from here. And uh, not only will this kind of review what we've gone over, but it'll give you a lot more. With all we've done the last two Sundays, we're just skipping across the surface. There's so much more to understand. So if you want to go a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more, I recommend uh, those two books right there. I think they'd be really helpful for you. You know, uh, next week we're going to come back. We're, I, I, th- I think you're next week, and I'm really talking to you people who like have been in church 10 years or more. I all but promise you when we leave next week, you're going to say, why didn't anybody ever explain that to me before? 
Because there's something really big out there about our Bibles that we never talk about, but it's kind of a huge... All these interpretations and translations, right? So we're going to understand that next week. I think we'll have a lot of fun with that. We're going to look at different translations. So come back, come back next week for that. We're going to have a, a lot of fun as we continue to understand what it is we hold in our hand when, in our Bible. Hey, you know what my Bible tells me? My Bible, the word that originated from God's mouth said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And in that 1,500 years of writing, it does not suggest a single other path to an opportunity to stand before God righteously. God has that. That's what his voice wants for you is the opportunity to know his love, to know his forgiveness. And upon becoming into that that confession of faith, the Bible says, not Southern Baptist, not this church, not this pastor, the Bible says we begin our following with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says the very second we believe, we become a part of a family. Over 30 commands on how we relate with one another. It's not a loose connection. It's a family connection. It's It's a universal We're family with all believers everywhere, and we live that out in a local body of Christ, a a local church. Hey, listen, if you've got questions today about how to begin a relationship with Christ, what it means to be baptized, how to join the church, uh, any of those kinds of questions, we'd love to be able to have a few minutes to talk with you about that, maybe answer those questions in your life. As we leave here, as you go out these doors, there's a a desk right in the center toward the back. There'll be some folks standing there uh, just waiting to have that conversation with you. Go out there and take advantage of that today. If you're a guest with us today, I'd love the opportunity opportunity to meet you. I'll I'll be out there for a few minutes in the center also. Hope you'll come by and say hello. If this is your first time here, we have a gift for you. Go to that same desk in the center. Tell them this is your first time and they'll, they'll give you that gift.